Hi, thank you very much for joining in this Bible study. Today we're going through Acts chapter 10, in which we're going to meet a man named Cornelius, who is a centurion. And the message, the main point that we're going to look at today is that God's salvation is not just for the Jews. It's for everybody. The salvation that Jesus Christ brings through his death and resurrection is not just for God's chosen people, the Jews, and not just for uh, those people who go to church on Sunday and are very strict and religious and do all these specific things. It's for everybody. Everybody has the opportunity to be able to accept that free gift of salvation. And that's the point that we're going to look at today is, is that um, Peter, the Apostle Peter, is going to have his eyes open to the fact that, yes, the Jews are God's chosen people, but the new covenant made in the blood of Jesus Christ is for all. And Peter is going to have his eyes open to that fact today in Acts chapter 10. And I'm excited to get into it. It's a, it's a fun chapter. So why don't you bow your heads and let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for um, this time that we have. I pray that you'll be here with me, speak through me. And I pray that you will honor this time and be with those people as they're listening to this or watching this, Lord, and show us something new, educate us, teach us something. We love you, Lord. We honor you with this time. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So why don't you open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. <clears throat> Picking up Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. Okay, we're going to stop right there. There's three things that I want to do a little historical, cultural background on. Uh, of this. First of all, we have the city, Caesarea. Second, we have the man named Cornelius. And third, we have his role as a centurion. So I want to look at those. The two main that we're going to look at before we read further is Caesarea, what, that town itself. Uh, we're going to read a little bit about that. And then what does it mean that he was a centurion? What does that mean that he was a, a Roman centurion? So my Bible... Um, uh, has some notes below. So uh, the commentary here says Caesarea is located 30 miles north of Joppa and named in honor of Augustus Caesar. It was the headquarters for the Roman forces of occupation. Okay, so then we're also going to pull up um, from the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary uh, 2B, which is uh, all acts. Um, Caesarea. Caesarea Maritima was a major seaport city about 60 miles northwest of Jerusalem. So 60 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And it's on the water. We know that. It's a maritime city. Politically, it functioned as the provincial capital of Judea and was home to the Ro Roman governors. It was the capital for Rome in all of Judea. So major uh, um, hub for the Romans. The city had only recently been built by Herod the Great uh, over the former site of a coastal town called Stratos Tower and occupied uh, 235 acres within the perimeter wall. 
uh, as you recall, uh, cities at this time were all fortified and walled. So it was 235 acres within the walled city. Herod commissioned an army of workers to begin the work on the city and the harbor in 23 BC and actually completed the immense undertaking in a decade. He spared no expense in fulfilling his vision of creating a major international port that rivaled Alexandria and Piraeus, which is the port of Athens. Um, keep in mind that on the Mediterranean Sea at this point, there's, there's no natural harbors. It is all just uh, straight seashore. And so uh, what he did is created a harbor, an artificial harbor. In creating the first artificial harbor in the ancient world, Herod's engineers made use of a new sophisticated technology. Creating immense wooden forms, the engineers made much of the harbor and breakwater with a type of concrete that hardened underwater. Uh, he partnered the city itself in the style of pattern, excuse me, the style of the city itself, um, in the style of a Roman provincial capital with all the amenities, including temples, theater, market, hippodrome, and amphitheater. The beautiful 4,000 seat theater was located at the south end of the city with the seats facing the Mediterranean Sea. Archaeologists estimate that the seating capacity around the oval track of the hippodrome was 30,000. This thing was massive for uh, chariot races, etc. The city was laid out on the Hellenistic grid model with streets that ran north-south and east-west. The infrastructure of the city included an uh, intricate sewer system with an ab abundant water supply. Herod's engineers designed an immense aqueduct that brought water from mountain springs uh, some six miles to the north. Most of the aqueduct was carried on high arches, uh, but part of it through a quarter of a mile long tunnel, which was bored through a sandstone ridge. Herod named the city after Caesar Augustus, uh, the reigning emperor. Josephus, uh, the historian, tells us of the great honor he bestowed on Caesar. On rising ground opposite the harbor mouth stood Caesar's temple. An exceptional size and beauty in it was a colossal statue of Caesar no wit in, inferior to the Olympian Zeus, which it was intended to resemble, and one of Rome compared with the Hera of Argos. Herod dedicated the city to the province, the harbor to those who sailed those seas, and the honor of his new creation to Caesar. Caesarea, which basically it's spelled Caesar with an E-A on the end, uh, Caesarea was the name he gave it. The city had great significance for Christianity, not only because of Luke's uh, portrayal of the con conversion of the Gentile family of Cornelius, which we're going to look at today, but also as the place where Orgian um, uh, and uh, Eusebius lived and taught. For Jews, painful memories were associated with uh, Caesarea. At the outset of the Jewish war in AD 66, the Gentile citizens of the city massacred nearly an entire population of Caesarea's Jews. So what we learn from this is that this is the hub of the Roman uh, occupation in Judea. It is a very modern city, uh, but it has um, Caesar worship was a religion. I mean, they had a statue bigger than any statue that they had done of Zeus in that same area. Um, Caesar was worshipped. So from a religious standpoint, you have... Uh, Caesar worship, but then you also still have the Greek gods and the Roman gods um, that were worshipped as individual different gods. Remember that the, the Greeks and the Romans had many, 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 many different gods that they worshipped. 
you do have a Jewish presence as well, but that's on the minority side uh, of the percentage of the people. It is a very secular, uh, modern town that we're looking at. Okay, so that's Caesarea. Now let's look at uh, 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 Centurion. The Centurions are the principal professional officer in the Roman army. They served as the commanding officer over troops of 80 to 100 men and are paid very well. The financial attraction of the centurion, however, was the pay was probably some 16 times that of the basic legionnaire uh, salary. In short, a centurion had both considerable military and social status and wealth. As a centurion, Cornelius was also a Roman citizen. The historian uh, Polybius says of the centurions, they wish centurions not so much to be venturesome and daredevil as natural leaders uh, of a steady and sedate spirit is what they're looking for. They do not desire them so much to be men who will initiate attacks and, and open the battle, but men who will hold their ground when... Uh, worsted and hard-pressed and be ready to die at their posts. Okay, so that's the information that we have on the Centurion. And here on Centurion, we have uh, commanded a military unit that normally numbered at least 100 men. Uh, the Roman Legion, uh, so within a legion, you have uh, multiple Centurions. A legion was about 6,000 men, was divided into 10 regiments each of which had a designation. This was the Italian regiment. Uh, another was the Imperial. Um, a centurion commanded about a sixth of a regiment. Centurions were carefully selected. All of them mentioned in the New Testament appear to have had noble qualities. The Roman centurions provided necessary stability to the entire Roman system. Okay, so we know we have a Roman centurion, Cornelius, that is in the hub of the Roman presence in Judea. That's our background. Okay, continuing on. Actually, I'm going to read verse 1 again of uh, Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all of his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need. He gave generally to the, generally, generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. So we're going to pause right there. He's not a Jew, but he does believe in God, right? So an, another in the commentaries that I looked up, um, this would be equivalent of a an individual who believes in God, prays to God, and wants to be a good moral person. He hasn't gone through the work necessary to um, become a full-fledged Jew. Uh, he's definitely not a Christian yet. But he fears God, loves God, and tries to be a moral individual. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. 
He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. So a, a few things quickly to note. We just saw that in verse 6, he is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Okay, so we know the house that Simon Peter is staying at is by the sea. And he goes up onto the roof. So chances are, up on the roof, you get a nice cool breeze. You can see the ocean. Uh, probably a nice place to relax. Another thing to note from a historical standpoint, oftentimes these houses had multiple layers where you would go up onto the roof and there would be uh, an awning, a, a sheet that would be spread out over the roof to keep the shade um, and to keep it cool. So, I mean, the, the way I envision this as far as what Peter's doing here is he's going up to rest on the roof in the cool breeze coming off of the ocean, in the shade, looking up, and there's this big awning, this big um, cloth that's over the top of him as he's uh, going to pray. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. What does this mean? What is this vision that he had? If you're new to Christianity and you haven't read the Old Testament at all, um, this is absolutely bewildering. What on earth? He has this vision of this sheet lowered down and there's animals, four-legged animals, reptiles, and birds. And God says to him, kill and eat. And Peter's like, no, I can't. I would never do that. It's like, wait, what? What does this even mean? And then God says to him, uh, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Well, you need to understand Peter is a Jew, okay? Now, for historical, cultural context, let's talk about the Jews and some of the things that the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and the Levitical Law said. As you may or may not know, Jews even today don't eat pork, right? Well, there's a whole lot of other things that they do not eat. Kosher, right? Something's kosher is critical for a thing to be kosher. Well, let's go back to at this point in time, there's a whole list of do's and don'ts. The Jews, the Old Testament, we call it the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew Bible. It's their Hebrew Bible. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, right? And in that, in Leviticus, you have the Levitical law. You have uh, an explanation of the Mosaic law of all the do's and don'ts that God gives to the Jews. Well, in this, God sets apart the Jews 
to be set apart. He sets them as his chosen people, but he wants them to be set apart on multiple different levels. So he gives them commands that include not to eat certain foods, but also uh, specific ways in which you're supposed to wash, but you're also not supposed to interact with unclean people. You're not supposed to interact with unclean objects. Um, even to the extent the, the covenant of circumcision, th physically, they would, they, they would <laughs> circumcision was designed to outwardly show a difference between being a Jew and being a Gentile. God called the Jews to be set apart, and they lived that way religiously. They followed all of the rules because God told them to do that. Well, one of the rules, not one, but there were many rules as it related to what you could eat. There's what's called clean and unclean animals. And this, for reference, is Leviticus chapter 11. And just for fun, because it's so much fun to read through Leviticus, it actually is, um, if you take the time to read it. Uh, it's pretty crazy going through and reading it, but it's uh, an essential thing that you should do at some point. Um, why don't you open up to Leviticus chapter 11, and we are going to read just a little bit of uh, what is unclean and clean as far as food to the Jew. <clears throat> okay, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, Though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof, it is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof, it is unclean for you. The pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. Of all the creatures living in the water, of the seas and the streams, you may eat only eat any that have fins and scales. But all the creatures in the sea or streams that do not have fins and scales whether among all the swarming things or among all the other living creatures in the water, you are to regard as unclean. And since you are to regard them as unclean, you must not eat their meat. You must regard their carcasses as unclean. Anything living in the water that does not have fins and scales is to be regarded as unclean by you. These are the birds you are to regard as unclean. I'm almost done. Uh, and not eat because they are unclean. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, any kind of black kite, any kind of raven, the horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, the little owl, the cormorant, the great owl, the white owl, the desert owl, the osprey, the stork, any kind of heron, the hoopie, and the bat. We're not supposed to eat bats. If you do still believe that the coronavirus came from bats, if they had followed the Old Testament and not eaten a bat, maybe you wouldn't have had the coronavirus coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, if you still believe that that actually did come from bats and wasn't uh, manufactured in a lab. Who knows on that one, uh, right? Okay, tangent. The point being here, and, and I don't mean to jest, but there was a long list that the Jews lived by religiously. They would not eat things that, were, that, that, that God told them not to eat because God told them not to eat these things. 
An interesting thing is to, to, to study is this question of why. Why uh, were they supposed to eat these things and not these things? Uh, why is this okay and this not okay? From a health standpoint, one of the things that's very interesting as you look through history, all of the things that the Jews were called to do led to them living a healthier lifestyle. In fact, during the bubonic plague, the Black Death, many people blamed the Jews because they didn't get sick because they properly washed their hands and because they called certain things unclean and just would not touch certain things. The main point is, is that all of these things were designed to set the Jew apart, okay? So keep that in mind. So now, coming back to our story in Acts chapter 10, we see Peter. He's on the roof. He falls asleep. He has a trance of some sort. Chances are he's looking up at what looks like a sheet, and he has this vision, the awning, he has this vision um, of a sheet that's lowered down, and with it, all sorts of animals, both clean and unclean, birds and reptiles, clean and unclean, and God says, you can eat anything you want, is the idea. And Peter's like, no, I've never. The idea being is, is that Peter is saying he has followed all of the rules. He has remained kosher, if you want to call it that, and, and followed that system. But God says to him here, don't call anything unclean that God has called clean. And the idea here is do not call anything impure, impure that God has made clean. There is a new covenant. And what Peter is about to discover is that this vision and God talking to him is not just talking about the fact that he can now eat bacon and now eat ham, uh, among other things. It's talking about the fact that salvation is not just for the Jews and that everybody, whether clean or unclean, whether Jew or Gentile, is loved under God and is, has a right to the salvation that God offers. That's the big picture. Continuing on. Verse 16. This happened three times and immediately the sheet went, uh, was taken back up to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. I would argue that had Peter not had this vision and the angel had not told him to go with the men, I don't think Peter would have gone with him. And the reason why I believe that is because uh, what would be the point of this vision and what would be the point of the angels talking to him lest uh, uh, this does happen? Peter is a Jew and he has lived his entire life following that system. And so now he's just had this vision and God telling him to go with these three guys that are unclean Romans that are Gentiles. He never would have been associated with. It's a sin to associate with 
Gentiles. You're not supposed to go with them. You're not supposed to eat with them. You're not supposed to associate with them. But God tells them, Peter, go with these guys. The next day, Peter started out with them. And some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So there's a large group that's gathering. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. I love that. All throughout the Bible, you see um, this happens to, to Peter. It happens to Paul. It happens to angels. Angels, I get that. And, and in fact, uh, it makes sense why they're falling at, at Peter because the, he's healing people in the same way that Jesus did. And, and all these miracles are happening. Even in, in earlier in Acts, if you recall, people would pu put uh, um, injured people or lame people just to, to have the shadow pass by, Peter's shadow pass by. So you can understand how he is getting quite a reputation and quite a following. But every time whether it's an angel or it is an apostle, um, disciple, they always say, don't worship me, worship God. That is a very clear sign and a distinction between a false apostle and a true one is that all credit goes to God, not to them as the individual. Okay, that was a tangent, sorry. Uh, verse 27, while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Do you see here? Peter, Peter gives us the explanation of that vision. I said it before, but this is how I know how this is how we know that that's true is that Peter of his own accord tells us that that vision that he had of the animals was speaking more so, yes, it was talking about what you can and cannot eat, but it's also talking about the fact that this is talking about people and salvation. Let me read it again. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask, why have you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour. At three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon, the tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything God has commanded you to tell us. I love that. I've mentioned this before, but you almost always see God working in two parts. There's two parts to every story. You see the Holy Spirit doing a work in somebody. The Holy Spirit is who was working on Cornelius before Peter even came on the scene. And meanwhile, God works on Peter and connects the dots. So, so often it's our responsibility as Christians to listen to the Holy Spirit and to, to follow the promptings, even though sometimes they might be awkward or, or cause you to step out of your boundary, but know that there's likely something else that's going on that God is doing in someone else's life, and he wants to use you in some really cool way to be the hands and feet of Christ.
Okay, there was another tangent. I apologize. Uh, uh, three days ago, I was, uh, uh, da, 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 so I sent for you immediately, verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism of John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God anointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. Do you get what's happening here? As you recall, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. Pentecost is where we see the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the Jewish believers. That's that instance in which uh, there was uh, flames that landed on people's shoulders and immediately everyone started speaking in languages that weren't their own. And when people came up because they heard the commotion, uh, rem remember, the commotion was this massive loud wind that sounded like a hurricane that could be heard all throughout Jerusalem. And, and thousands of people gathered around to witness this. And some people were like, these guys are drunk. What are these guys doing? But they were able to hear, as you recall, Peter was the one who, who immediately preached. This is his first sermon where he gives this message of, of the fact that it's Jesus Christ foretold this. This is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And people were hearing the disciples, those people who had the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they were hearing them speaking in their native language, languages that these guys didn't understand. That was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which Christ foretold would happen. But it happened in Jerusalem. Likely it was Solomon's colonnade, which we talked about before, which was in, in the court system of the temple. So this is, you had to be a Jew to even get to this point. So it's all Jews that are witnessing that happen. Well, here we see the exact same thing happen, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But these guys aren't Jews. They're, this is a Roman pagan family that, that has, that, that they witness, these Jewish believers witness the Holy Spirit be poured out on them. Verse 46. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Let me read this again. While, verse 44. 
While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. The big picture here, the important message, is that the salvation that Peter has received from Christ, he is now realized through the angel telling him and through this vision that it's not just for the Jews, but it's for the Gentiles as well. And we are going to see the expansion of the church and the outpouring and the outreach of the church go at first to the Jews, but this is now going to be the spreading. It's going to continue to spread to the Gentiles. We're going to see Paul, uh, uh, chapter 11 has Peter, but we're going to see the church in Antioch. We're going to see the church expand and grow as the outreach. Peter has now been given an expansion of his charge. As you recall, Jesus said, go and make disciples of the world, starting in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, but then to the ends of the world. And that's what Peter's been given this charge. So the takeaway for us today is that salvation is a free gift for everybody. And one of the things, one of the biggest uh, criticisms of Christians that so many people make is that Christians are self-righteous, do-gooders that, that think that they're better than everybody else. Don't be that way. Christian, do not be that way. You need to realize that the distinction between being a Christian and not is an acknowledgement of the fact that you are not better than everybody else. And that's what we learn from this is that the Jews are called by God to be set apart. And Peter's entire life, his whole system, the Jews are called by God to be set apart in what they eat and in, in, in how they do things and who they associate with. Even physically, they're to be set apart through circumcision. God calls them his chosen people. And they still are to this day. But the message that Peter receives is that the gift of salvation is not just for the Jew, but it's for everybody. So for us today, one of the challenges that we face, we are human. We are full of pride. The Bible talks about everyone has fallen short. All of us are broken. All of us are sinful. Our hearts are deceitful and broken beyond repair. Anything good that I do is Christ in me doing that. It's the Holy Spirit working through me. And when you know that and acknowledge that as a Christian, your compassion and your love for those people around you should expand. And you should realize the fact that you are not better than that person who doesn't go to church. And then you're not better than anybody else. You're just saved because you accepted that gift. It is very easy. It's very easy for a Christian 
to get into this habitual system of going to church on Sunday and then hanging out in your small little network of Christian, your Christian bubble, and to look down on the rest of the world and to, to say things to people and to do things by your action that, that tell the rest of the world that you're somehow better than they are. But you should have, as a Christian, you should have more compassion and be open to the fact that, that every single person that's out there, you can think in your mind right now of a single individual that in your mind, they're not deserving of grace that they are so bad or that they, they, they're so far gone in a sinful lifestyle that, yeah, God's grace is for everybody, but, but, but not for that person. Understand that the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross, he did once for all. Now, the Bible does talk about the fact that not everybody's going to choose that, that Revelation talks about the fact that God stands at the door and he knocks. And for those that hear the knock and open the door, he will come in and eat with them and they with him. So the most important question that any single human being will ever have is this question of what you're going to do about Christ. And if you haven't made that decision of accepting Christ or not, I'm going to pray that prayer right now. And if you are a believer and you've already accepted that, that's awesome, that's great. Why don't you pray with me? But if you've never prayed that prayer before, if you have like butterflies in your gut right now, that's the Holy Spirit nudging you to pray this prayer. And all it's doing, all that we will be doing when we pray this prayer is acknowledging that you are a sinner, that you are broken, and that you do need that salvation that's meant for everybody, not just the Jew, not just for the perfect person, but for the broken person. The key thing is a contrite spirit, a, a person who says, I can't do it on my own and I need God's help. So why don't you pray with me? Why don't you bow your heads and let's pray together. Repeat after me. Lord, I need you. Thank you for the work you did on the cross. Thank you for saving me. I invite you into my life. Please change me from the inside out. Please help me to walk with you day by day. I love you, Lord. Thank you for dying for me. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray right now for those people who prayed that prayer for the first time. Lord, there's angels rejoicing in heaven and I rejoice with them. It's exciting stuff. Lord, I pray that you would bring people alongside the new believers uh, to walk with them in this new journey. And I pray, Lord, that they will get connected, find a church, and that they will embrace you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this time that we have together. I pray that the information that, that, that I've shared will sink deep and that uh, people will have open minds, open ears, open hearts to your word. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Uh, stay tuned. Next week, we're going to do Acts chapter 11. I'll see you guys then.